Yeah, thanks, Steve, for uh, having me be with you guys. How are you guys doing? Good? Good. I want to welcome in our uh, campuses online with us today. What's up, Hobart Portage? They're going crazy. It's good to see you guys. I hope that that big screen over there is making me look gigantic because everybody here thinks I don't eat. So... That's cool. Hey, what's up, Cedar Lake, too? Good to see you guys over in your new digs. I hope you guys are doing well. Flipping your Bibles to Psalm chapter 63. Psalm chapter 63 is where we're going to be anchored today in our text. And as you're flipping to it, uh, I just want you to know it is a joy of mine to be with you today and open up God's Word and to see what it has to say for our lives. Um, Let's get right to it. Anybody here looked back, you know, a couple months ago and looked at the calendar of summer and they were like, ah, summer. Time for a little bit of R&R, and all of a sudden, it's September 13th, and you're like, pumpkin spice lattes are back at Starbucks already? (laughs) And it's cold? And I'm still exhausted. Anybody there? Is it just me? Like, you woke up today, and you're like, I gotta wear a sweater to church today. Ah, what happened to summer? I think We've all been ingrained to think that summer has been a time for us to uh, rest and relax and kind of be refreshed, right? That's at least the dream that's been pitched to us since we were in kindergarten, is that take your summer vacations and then come back in the fall ready to do the real work. Um, And yet, I look back at my calendar and go, summer came and went and I don't feel refreshed. I haven't had a chance to catch up. Actually, if I'm being completely honest, life is getting incredibly busy, Um, Our busyness is kind of our measure of productivity for us. If I'm busy, I'm doing good. And uh, our busyness in America, I've noticed this. Have you noticed this? That our busyness carries with it this dirty little secret. You want to know what it is? We like being busy. We love it. We worship the hurried life. I heard it once said that we worship at a throne of golden arches, not because they sell good food or cheap food, but because they sell fast food. Isn't it true we eat our meals in cars, we watch TV on our DVRs, we say things to each other like, uh, hey man, sorry I didn't have time to listen to your voicemail. What's up? And so our busyness has led us with this problem. We've, we've got so much to do and so little time to do it. And so we multitask. Anybody here a great multitasker? No, you're not. <laughs> and have you ever noticed what we multitask? We don't multitask the big things, like putting together a will or buying a home. You don't really multitask. No, no, we multitask the minutia, the, 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 idios, the, the lame things of life. A, a normal night in my family, just to give you a window into our relationship. Sorry, babe. Um, <laughs> we've learned how to eat dinner, watch three TV shows, check email, Facebook, and Twitter, also buy shoes on Amazon, all within the one-hour span of a Netflix binge. <laughs> if that's not the apex of the American life right now, I don't know what is. And in these busy seasons of life, with our schedules going out of control, with everything around us, it seems like pushing in on us and pressing in on us, I can find myself in this state of of soul wheezing, where my spirit is is, is sort of hunched over, kind of begging God, God, is it ever going to stop? Am I ever going to be refreshed? Will it ever cease? Friends, we have an energy crisis today. 
We are running out of gas for our souls because it's possible that we're running on the wrong fuel. We tend to run our souls on the fuel of a productive and informed, multitasked faith. But listen, listen, you cannot multitask your way to godliness. Depth takes time. So no amount of podcasting sermons on treadmills or listening to worship music in your car, as great as those things are, will ever really truly satisfy the longings of our soul within us. Which is why I have for us today, and God's word has for us today, in Psalm 63, a very um, backwards, counterintuitive, uh, sort of, it can't possibly work this way type of message. We're going to see today, I want to bring to your attention the often forgotten, often neglected spiritual discipline of solitude. Solitude is taking time to intentionally press pause. Everybody say press pause. To press pause and retreat from the busyness of everyday life to seek God. Taking time to press pause and retreat to get back from the chaos, from the fray, and to seek the Lord. We're not meant to live our lives in solitude. It's good for you to be here today. But we're supposed to utilize solitude as a tool for us to seek God. I think today, for my own soul and for your soul, especially at the beginning of a very busy fall season, it's time to press pause. It's time to press pause. And at all of our campuses, we said it's time to press pause. So let's read in Psalm 63 together to see what this really looks like. Psalm 63, do you have it before you? Great. Psalm 63 was penned by King David. He was the ruler over Israel. He was both a hipster and a stud. <laughs> Verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let's just stop there. It's hard to miss David's language of desperation in this psalm, isn't it? I mean, we, don't, we don't really talk this way unless we're truly desperate. His soul is crying out for his personal and intimate God. There's a physical desperation that's depicted here, saying, I, my soul is weary like it's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Um, this psalm was written by David when he was in the wilderness, and I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, he literally was in the wilderness. David had to get up from his throne and flee from his palace because people were hunting his life. And David had to do this twice in his life. How messed up is that? This time, we believe that Psalm 63 was penned while David was being hunted by his own son, Absalom, who was trying to overthrow his dad and place himself in a position of leadership. So, hopefully that reframes some things in your family. In the midst of a sticky situation, David presses pause. We know this because he literally wrote this down. Pressing pause, is, it's, it's what happens when we write, when you have to sit there and write this. But he pauses in his soul to do a few things. And this is what I want to show you today through his psalm. And the first is this, is that he seeks God desperately. You can't seek God desperately in the midst of the busyness and the to and fro of every day. We have to stop. We have to pause. We have to seek God 
desperately. David says, God, I recognize my dependence upon you. I, I, I see my need for you. David essentially is doing this. He is stopped in the midst of life and he falls to his knees and he cries, Oh God, help! I can't do this without you. I need you, oh God. Only you can satisfy. Only you can be my strength. You see it, right? You see the desperation of David as he's penning this psalm. He's dry. He's weary. He's desperate. In the summer of 2012, my wife and I had an amazing opportunity to visit uh, the nation of Haiti on a mission trip. We brought about a dozen college students down from the uh, suburbs of Chicago uh, and had a great time serving the people in this village that was a very remote village. They had been the outcasts from society. The government had forgotten about them. They were squatting on this land. The land was quite beautiful, actually. It was actually a, a, waste, a wasteland with cactuses and rocks and stuff, but it was situated next to this beautiful lake and mountains. I thought to myself as we pulled up the first time, if this was in America, there would be multi-million dollar resorts around this place. And I wondered what was the big deal about this place? Why was it so failing? And it was a 100 degree day and I realized nobody was swimming in the water. And they had 500-gallon cisterns set up to catch rainwater, but those were dusty. They were bone dry as if water had never been in there. And I asked around, and we, we, we realized that the lake, as beautiful as it was, it was filled with brimy, brackish water, which is like this salt water that's diseased. And so people didn't swim in there. There was no fish in there. They didn't drink the water. For them to get water meant they had to take a two-mile trek with a five-gallon Home Depot bucket back to land, find a spigot, fill it up, steal water, and carry it back on their head the two miles. And people would do this day after day after day. Well, being Americans, we overpacked, right? We overpacked for everything when we go places. And when we loaded up our van that day, we were told to load it up with as much water as we could handle. And so in the back of our van, as we're driving up, I know there's cases and cases of bottled water. And we were told, a little tip for us was, you're going to feel compassionate. That's okay. You should feel compassionate. But realize that if you don't drink this water, you will be very sick. You're not accustomed to living the way these people are. You're accustomed to living off of 64 ounces of water a day. These people are accustomed to living off of six, which is like less than that free cup at Panera. And so it's okay to give water, but don't give too much because you need it. How cruddy of advice is that? Because we would go grab a sip of water and we'd try and like hide around the back of the van and be like, like it was contraband or something. And kids knew what we were doing. And every time we opened up a bottle of water, we would be flocked by hundreds of kids who would look up at us and go, dlo, 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 which is the Creole word for water, water, water. And a couple of us would just crack bottles and just pour it into their mouths like they were baby birds. It was, it was just a, a, a quick picture into my own soul. Later that night, my wife, Kristen, in our uh, team devotion time, she brought up to us, she said, you know what I learned today? I learned what it looks like to live in a dry and weary land where there is no water. She said, I, I so quickly remembered how my soul depicts the same desperation that these kids depicted physically, even though we don't show the same physical problems. So moved by this experience, my wife grabbed a couple rocks and wrote on them, Psalm 63, verse 1. 
And she handed them out to people, and ours sits on the window ledge of our kitchen right next to our sink. One day I was looking for an illustration for this exact verse, and I was doing dishes, and I looked up, and lo and behold, there was Psalm 63, verse 1. And on the other side, it says Haiti 2012. And this rock sits on our window ledge as a reminder to us of that experience and the reminder that every day we are desperate for the Lord. That every day my soul yearns and is longing to be satisfied by the only one who can satisfy us. The irony of this rock to me is that it sits nine inches from my water faucet. If I want to get water, if I want to drink of water, I know exactly where to go. I get up from my couch, I go get a glass of water, I put it on the faucet, and and I'm good. How foolish would it be for me to go spend a long day in the yard, working hard, pulling weeds, planting flowers, mowing the yard, just working and working up a sweat, and never stop to get a drink. Never stop to have my body, to have it quenched, to have my thirst quenched. And David is so pinpointing for us the same exact thing. He says, do you want to know where to get your soul satisfied? It's not hiding. It's not a limited resource. It's God. Run to God to have your soul satisfied. In the moments of life where we are uh, frantically running around, we have to press pause and seek God desperately because our souls are craving him as if we lived in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I wonder when the last time was that you were on your knees before God. When was the last time that you pressed pause and said, God, I need you? Coming here to services and saying, I need you, I need you, that's fantastic. That's part of it. But in your daily life, have you pressed pause to seek God desperately? I'm so reminded of the numerous scriptures that promise us that if we seek God, we will find God. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. We have a God who wants to be found, so we must seek him desperately. And when we seek God desperately, look at what happens. Look at what happens in verse two. Psalm 63 verse two. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In the midst of this context of David being desperate for the Lord, he is seeking God, and as he considers God in the midst of seeking him, he pauses and he remembers God's activity. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. We need to pause to remember the activity of God. It's amazing to me what you can forget in the busyness of life. It's amazing to me how the most amazing uh, events, the most incredible situations, often become just very quick memories in the rear view of life. One example is this. I have a daughter. Her name is Elin. It's Swedish. It's a real name. Just to get over that. She was born uh, two years ago. She just turned two. And for the first year of her life, she's our firstborn. Um, for the first year of our life, uh, my wife, Kristen, has put together this baby book. Do you remember baby books? Baby books were really cool before Instagram and blogs. And uh, you would take pictures, print them out, cut them, paste them, make these cool things. Now you just do it all on Shutterfly or something like that. 
Um, but in this baby book, there were spaces for us to record first doctor's appointment and mommy's memories of first days at home. And there's this space in Elan's baby book that says daddy's memories of Elan's first days at home. And for the first year, Kristen would nag me and she'd say, Dan, there's this empty space in the baby book. You need to fill it out, you know, pretty quickly. Um, Elan being our first kid it made me a first-time father. And, and as I was having a kid, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but uh, as I was preparing to be a dad, everybody gave me free advice. And I was like, oh, okay, sure, I'll take it. And what I kept hearing time and time again was this. Dan, you're going to be a dad, which means you need to write stuff down because you get to be my age, someone who's 35. That's who was telling me this. I'm only 28, sorry. Once you become my age, you're going to forget because all of life goes downhill after 30, apparently. <laughs> that's, that's like the impression I'm getting from everyone. And I was like, in the back of my mind, thinking, you're going to forget the details about your firstborn? And pardon my dark heart, but I thought to myself, you're the worst parent in the world. <laughs> Who forgets their kid being born? Like, what kind of parent? I'm, I'm never going to forget that. This is my baby. Uh, this is my daughter. I, I, I'm gonna this is, this is going to be locked down like a vault. And uh, on the eve of Elon's first birthday, Kristen pulled out the baby book and slid it in front of me. And she said, Dan, there's still a blank space here called Elon's first days at home, daddy's memories of Elon's first days at home. And I was sitting at my desk in our office in our house, and I remember looking at the baby book, and it's like she put in front of me the SAT. <laughs> and I sat there and I said, crud. She's how old? Already? Are you sure that's not a mistake? What happened? And I sat there so disappointed with myself because I couldn't think of a single thing. And all these people, the words of advice were ringing in the background saying, you should write stuff down, you should write stuff down, you should write stuff down. And I was like, oh, I should have written stuff down. <laughs> and I was so disappointed in myself. I tried to dig up the baby book to show you, but we recently moved and have since been, not been able to find it. Um, we have another child. He's less than a year old, and he doesn't even have a book, so <laughs> it's the better way to do it. As I sat there that day disappointed with myself, I remember um, being disappointed, you know, and then thinking and pausing. And, and the more I thought, the more came back to me. The more I thought, the more I remembered, I, I could start to actually hear those beautiful cries of my daughter when she first entered the world. I remember the look on my wife's face when she first saw that baby. I remember my mom, who is a labor delivery nurse and was the nurse on call that day for us. And she got to deliver her first grandchild into the world. She got to teach her son how to change his first diaper. I remember that uh, my daughter fell asleep in my arms and it was like for nine months she had just been waiting to be held by her daddy. I remember it was good. I remember it was sweet. And listen, you and I are in such danger for getting the awesome, sweet, good work of God in our lives if we never take time to press pause and remember God's activity. 
running to and fro throughout our lives, if we never stop to remember what God has done, we are so likely to forget it. The sanctuary. David says in, in Psalm 63 verse 2, he says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. He says, God, in the midst of this wilderness experience, in the midst of me being away from my everyday life, in the midst of me being out in the, in the wilderness running for my life, I have a time and a place that I can look back on and see the hand of God at work in my life. The sanctuary was a place in Jerusalem. It was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was a place where um, the, the manifestation of God literally dwelled amongst the people. Inside the, the sanctuary, inside this tabernacle, there was this box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the physical representation of God in the midst of the people. The people would gather at the sanctuary, at the tabernacle for sacrifices. They would gather to hear the covenant word of God explained. They would gather for prayer. They would gather for these feasts like the Passover, which in themselves are instituted by God so that we might not forget. And David said, I've seen you at work in the sanctuary, God, and it was awesome and it was sweet. And I know that you're alive because I've seen you at work in my life. And I'm so reminded and so thankful when I think about Psalm 63 verse 2 that the work of God in the world is not limited to a tent of meeting in Jerusalem. No, I'm reminded that God sent his son Jesus to Jerusalem to create a new sanctuary. That in Jerusalem at Calvary on the cross, the people gathered for a sacrifice. That as Christ was put upon that cross and paid the penalty for our sins, the word of God that had been made flesh was now becoming a new covenant through his blood. It's what we celebrated in communion today. I remind you that Christ died for us and, and forgave our sins and rose again from the dead, Amen. And that through him, we might have access to the holy God so that holy God might dwell within unholy man. And unholy man may dwell now with holy God. You see, through Jesus, we have access to the Father. We no longer need the sanctuary. And here's what I'm saying. Here's the point. Is that if you take time to press pause and consider God's activity and remember what he's done, you'll, through Jesus, be able to see grace in your life all around you. It's the stories of changed lives by the gospel, which is our sanctuary. I'm so grateful for this room right here in our auditoriums at our Hobart Portage and our Cedar Lake campuses. But in themselves, they are not a sanctuary. They're just buildings. The sanctuary is the place where God is at work and he's at work transforming and renewing lives. And so while 45 students came to Christ here this past week in this sanctuary, God has created in them a sanctuary. And he's created 45 new sanctuaries. This is what we just sang about, that holiness is Christ in me. And so what is God doing in your life? What memorials do you have to the Lord? How have you seen God move? Do you have the recollections of the times when you stood on stage and you dedicated yourself and your child to the Lord? Do you have those memories of when you got into either a tank or the lake and you professed to everyone, I'm a believer in Jesus and he's made me new and you've been baptized? Uh, how about those times when you prayed? fervently for the Lord to intervene and he showed up. We must pause, pause, pause to remember God's activity. Amen? This week, today, even right now, I'm hoping that you can be reminded of what God has done in your life. And, and when you're reminded, look at what happens. Look in verse three. You with me in verse three? You with me in verse three? David says, 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David pauses to seek God desperately, and he remembers God's activity. And, and here in verses 3 through 5, he, he pauses to praise God physically. He pauses to praise God physically. Solitude teaches us to sing, even in the desert. As we read this, we see David physically engaging the awesomeness of God. And when you pause to remember God's activity, isn't it just the next step that you would praise him for what he's done? David says that your love is better than life, so my lips will praise, my hands are raised, my soul is satisfied, and my words will be joyful songs to you. What happened to this man who, in verse 1, was on his knees, desperate for God, to here in verses 3, 4, and 5, being engaged in ramped up, revved up, total adoration of God? It's right here in verse, verse 3. It's love. David says, Because your steadfast, committed, unwavering, unchanging, never-ending love, James Montgomery Boyce is a commentator who is pretty brilliant, and he wrote this about the steadfast love of God. Read it with me. He says, God's love is steady and unchangeable, which is why it is better than even the best thing in life, which is life itself. Life can be lost, even though we value it and try and protect it at all costs. However, the faithful love of God can never be lost. David realizes the love of God far outweighs the outcome of his present circumstances. He looks around and he says, God, I, I know that I have lost a lot, but I haven't lost one thing, and that's your covenant love. I know that in all of this, God, I can praise you for your love. And so no matter how this ends up, God, no matter what happens around me, I know that one day I'm confident in my expectation that I will be with you because of your love. You see, we expect to hear songs from the high points of life, from the apex of life, from the mountains of life. We have that one song, the hills are alive with the sound of music. But a song in the desert really captures your attention. As a pastor, I'm often called upon in life's pain and, and, and trials to enter into difficult situations with families. Even at such a young age in ministry, I could tell you story after story after story of times that I was called upon to walk into a room where a family was facing tragedy. And as I've prepared myself to walk into these rooms, I've expected to hear things like, Dan, where is God now? I'm 19 and I have cancer. Dan, where is God now? We've been trying for five years and everybody else has a kid, but we don't. Dan, where is God now? He was only 17. And as I've been expected to walk into these rooms and hear songs of sorrow. I've walked into these desert moments, these wilderness, and heard the most melodious songs of praise to God. Why? Because God's love is always good, even in the midst of our most terrible bad. That the steadfast, unchanging, never-ending love of our God is constant in our lives, even when the present circumstances of life crash down all around us. That even though we don't know what's happening and even though we don't know our future, we know that we have a God who loves us. That even though our life can be lost, God's love can never be lost. And so we pause 
You can, you can applaud that if you want to. We pause to praise God physically. My friends, we have so much to praise God for, don't we? Look at verse 6 through 8 with me to see how this works out for David. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Anybody been there in the midst of your desert land experience where you've been waiting and watching and meditating but not sleeping? Amid these sleepless nights, David says, I've been waiting for you, O God. And look what he says, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. David has paused in solitude to seek God desperately, to remember God's activity, to praise God physically, and here to rest in God's security. To rest in God's security. In this restlessness of life, David has found a strong fortress in which to hide himself, which is God. He remembers him on his bed. He meditates in the watches of the night. And God is his constant thought. He says this. He says, for you have been my help. For you. That's a statement of cause and effect. Essentially, David is saying, I know that I can trust you. I know that I can rest because I know that you are watching over me securely. David says, it's in the shadow of your wings that I will sing for joy. The picture is one of like an eagle who flies high above its young and its nest, protecting those who are his. The same wings of our God are spread over those who are his, watching us, protecting us. We can rest in the security of God. But security is a funny thing, isn't it? It seems like we're peddling security like crazy these days. Um, we put locks on uh, everything. Money in banks, alarms go on houses, 401ks get funded so that you can, re- you can have a secure retirement. Have you heard of this thing called LifeLock? Have you? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, no. It's essentially just a thing that tells you your identity is going to be stolen, so you better secure it. And you feel unsecured unless you have LifeLock. It's just a ploy to make you feel like you're unsecured. But if you think about security in every area, every realm of life, we realize quickly that there is no true security system because banks fail. Homes get broken into. Uh, Financial investments don't always work out. And regardless of the situation, our best attempts in security are really just a lessening of risk and not a removal of it. And David is pinpointing here something for us. That in this life, we do not have complete security. That we will be risking everything always unless we risk ourselves with the one who rules the world. That if you place your security in God, if you know that no matter how all this works out, the end goal is still the same of love in God, faith in Jesus Christ, being with him in eternity, that we have security. I think of all the insecurities that we face as humans. That list is pretty long, isn't it? Think of the insecurities in my own heart. As a pastor, when I find my identity in Christ and not in the approval of men, it changes the way that I can minister. When you as a parent find your security in God and not in the approval of your kids, it changes the way that you can parent. When we walk through life in the 
the difficult situations and we say, God, I know you have this. I can rest in you in the watches of the night. I know that you've got this. It changes everything. The moments when we press pause in life help us rest in God's security. David was so secure in his relationship with God that he says in verse eight, he says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Do you see it? He says, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. Uh, Have you ever thought about what it means to cling to something? I love this. Because this so balances that tension that we feel between God's sovereign choice and our free will. David says it's like clinging. To cling to something means to hold on to with all your life, but also to simultaneously be held right back onto. David says it's like static holding two objects together is our relationship to God. Like a scared child running to the arms of his father in the midst of a storm is our relationship to God. David's saying, God, I'm clinging on to you. I'm going to you. I'm I'm holding on to you, God. But I know that if ever I were to let go, I wouldn't fall because you'd be holding right back on to me. The sovereign hand of the Lord upholds us. He is watching over our lives. We can trust in him, friends. If you have faith in Christ, you can rest securely in our God. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's why we have a Psalm 23 type king shepherd in God who leads us by still waters and makes us lie down in green pastures and he restores our soul. We can rest in the security of God. But you know what we tend to do? I tend to do this. I place my security in things that are outside of God. Anytime that we place our security in things that are outside of God, in relationships, in status, in the amount of money that we have, in the type of car that we drive, in the type of clothes that we wear, in the type of church that we attend, whenever we place our security outside of God, we've created an idol. My friends, you chase chase money, sex, power, fame, influence, whatever your security is holding on to, that is your idol. And as followers of God, God says, Come, find your security, find your identity, find it all in me. You can trust in me. And so we have to press pause and say, God, what have I been trusting in that's not you? Today, in the middle of the first and second quarters, I want you to hit pause on your DVR and to ask that question. God, what have I been trusting in that is not you? Could you show me? And finally this. Do you have time for just one more thing? Good, the game doesn't start for another hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> it's, the next, it's the next people that have problems. Finally, read with uh, me this last portion of Psalm 63. Has this been helpful? Psalm 63, verses 9 through 11. Read it with me. David says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Okay. Anybody feel like we just mashed up two psalms here? Like, surely this has to be a mistake. It's like if you were to tag the ending of The Godfather onto the beginning of Frozen, this is the psalm that you would have. It's kind of cheery and happy at the beginning, and then sort of twisted and dark at the end, huh? Someone just imagined Olaf getting it. 
So, <laughs> sorry, it doesn't happen, kids. I believe the Bible is inspired, infallible, inerrant, the word of God that is profitable for us, all of it. I believe it's no accident that this is here, even though it seems a little odd to us. And actually, I want to argue to you that these are the most important verses in this psalm for our day and age. They are the most practical verses in this psalm in our day and age because David has paused in solitude to seek God desperately and remember God's activity and to praise God physically and to rest in God's security. But he also here demonstrates that he declares God's authority over his life. He declares God's authority. When we press pause, we are allowed to declare God's authority over our life. I see this scene kind of working itself out where David is penning the words of this psalm and he's desperate and he's on his knees and he's remembering what God has done and he's, he's praising God for who he is and he's, he's resting, saying, God, I know I can trust in you. And, and then something, something clicks right there and he, he says, God, I, I need to do something about this because, because God, you have provided for me. You have, you have protected me, but you've also positioned me. Because I am a king. Notice verse 11. He says, the king will rejoice in God. He said, but I'm a king and I'm not a king who is just in authority. I'm a king who is under authority. Because I am a king that is a king by the authority of the one who is authority of, of all the world. Men were at this time lining up to uh, pledge their allegiance to David's son, Absalom. Men were lining up to pledge their allegiance to David. And to them, David said, no, 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 don't pledge your allegiance to me. Pledge your allegiance to the Lord. Pledge your allegiance to the one who is in all authority for his way, for his will, for his work, always. And when we press pause in our lives, we realize that actually how this works out in our own lives is that we pledge allegiance most often to ourselves. I find myself in the authority of my own life. Making decisions, determining outcomes, uh, pushing all of my resources into one area and, and seldom thinking about what God would have me do. Do you find that too? And when we press pause in life, it helps us put authority where it belongs. Back on the one who is actually in authority. I find times when I press pause in my life and I read God's word and I praise him and I pray and I'm gathered with you all and I'm encouraged by the reading of God's word that I shrink in my soul. It's what John the Baptist said, that he might increase and I might decrease. It's that I might have a proper perspective of the authority of God in my life. We desperately need to pause to recognize God's authority. To trust God with our schedules, to trust God with our souls, to trust God with our everyday lives. It declares God's authority is over us. Listen, I want to say this. Nothing declares rebellious autonomy more than a jam-packed schedule that crowds out God. I want to say that again. Nothing declares rebellious autonomy more than a schedule that crowds out God. When we go through our lives with our busyness and our important tasks, and look at me, I've got this thing to do. I've got to get through all these 17 things today, and then God's not even one of them. It says, I'm more important than you, God. And yet when we press pause, when we stop, when we say, whoa, 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 one of these is going to fall and it's not going to be the God one because he is my authority. He is first place. My life is all about him. It helps us with this authority piece. And as a pastor, 
I'm so convicted by this truth that our schedules should declare the authority of God. That we might give God space to be our God. God forbid we try and build ministries at Bethel on our own giftedness or our own preferences. Because who am I? And who are you that we might think we know better? We're more talented than God. We're more uh, intelligent than God. Our wisdom is more than God. But when I take time to press pause and declare, God, you are my authority, it reorients my life and I start to say, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do? How can we be following you? You are the head of our church. You are the head of my life. You're the head of my family. You're the head of my job. And I want to follow after you. And all of a sudden it becomes your will and your way. And Lord, I need you to show me what that looks like. And so I want you today, I very much want you today to press pause. The beginning of this fall, the, this busy season, I want you to press pause. To find some, ta- some time today to get away from the busyness of everyday life and seek God desperately. Remember what God has done in your life. To praise him physically, to rest in his security, and to declare his authority. Then, my friends, we will have a relationship with God that so satisfies our souls and changes the world.